0: All right, so we're going to talk about critical theory uh, and its rise, the influence it's had in our culture, and then a Christian response. So uh, just briefly, the plan is this first session, uh, I'm going to deal with what critical theory is and the impact it's had in our world. And then the second session is more going to be about, okay, so what do we do about that? How do we respond to that as Christians? And then we'll have some time for Q&A at the end. Uh, There's some Uh, cards, some small sheets of paper on your table that you can write questions down and after the second um, session I'll I'll gather those. Uh, It could be a little hard to have questions from the floor. We'll see see what I'm for. I'm aware that I have way more material than I'll be able to cover in two hours, um, which inevitably happens. But we'll get to what we get to. So, on the inside cover I put two quotes the first is from Karl Marx, uh, probably the most famous religious people. Religion is the opium of the people, uh, and there's an awful lot packed into that statement from Marx that we're going to get into. And then in Proverbs we have uh, one, one of uh, the key responses to that, which is evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Uh, critical theory at the end of the day is about justice right? It's, it's an analysis of what's wrong with the world and why is it wrong. and what. It's very much a justice issue. And it's important for us as Christians to realize evil men do not understand justice. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, those who would reject the Lord are, are going to distort, they're going to taint, they're going to twist what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what should be done, what shouldn't be done, right? They're going to miss vital things. But those who seek the Lord... Can understand justice completely, right? Because we have a God who reveals himself. And so we don't, we don't need to be uh, discouraged or overwhelmed. We, we can actually have more insight than the world and its supposed experts. So I thought I'd start with two graphics uh, that are being put forward. This is, this is uh, offered as profound insight into three things. One is identity. So, who are we? Who, what are people? Who are people? Second is what's wrong with the world, and the third is what should be done about it. And so this wheel of power of privilege uh, you may have seen, uh, and privilege here, I'm using the the, uh, definition from Peggy McIntosh, she she wrote the um, seminal article on it, White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Privilege is a system of automatic advantages and unearned assets available only to dominant groups of people. And so uh, the critical theory world is an oppressor, oppressed world. Those are the categories. And, of course, part of what we, we want to recognize throughout is that, uh, there, of course, there's legitimacy to some of the things that critical theory is pointing out. Because if, if it was just nonsense, only a small handful of people would believe it. But that's not what happened, right? Tons of people believe it because it's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Right? So there's some legitimate, like oppression is a biblical category, justice and injustice. These are biblical categories. So we're not talking about just throwing out, but what we're saying is the framework that they use and the prescriptions they offer, that's the problem. So if you, to make sense of the wheel here, power is at the center. And so if you are a white, post-secondarily educated, able-bodied, heterosexual, neurotypical, robust, slim, property-owning, rich, English-speaking, cisgender man, citizen, you have power. And if you deviate from that in any way, you are marginalized, okay? That's what this wheel is saying. And the more you deviate from that, the more marginalized you are. Uh, And so those at the center are oppressors, and the closer you move to the periphery, you're oppressed, okay? And most of these are things that, well, it's a mix. Some of these things are just you're... You're born, right? The color of your skin is what you're born with. The, uh, your body shape and size, uh, your able-bodiedness, although that can change through circumstances, the neurotypical, all that sort of thing. But some of these things are, well, we all get various levels of education, or we um, speak various languages, and we do or don't own property, and, okay? But this is, they're saying this is how you should understand people, and you need to understand at the center of everything is power. And, and, and what happens is the oppressor groups structure city to maintain and, and increase their power and to disadvantage the marginalized. This, that's the, the basis of the critical theory view of the world. Okay, and we'll, we'll get into this. If you go to the next page, uh, you may have seen this, but the Smithsonian Institute released this during COVID in 2020. It wasn't out very long, because it got hammered <laughs> online. Uh, this is one of the most racist documents I've ever seen. Okay, so the, so going, if you look back to the wheel of privilege, what's at the center? Whiteness center. Okay, America has been a majority white country for, throughout its history. So they're saying, here's aspects and assumptions of whiteness and white culture in the United States. So here's how the power and privilege has played out in our country, is what they're saying. And uh, it's racist on many levels, uh, but it's saying, of course, if you're not white, then you don't have these values, and if you are white, then you do have these values. Right? It's like Joe Biden saying, "If you don't vote for him, you ain't black." Right? Understand <laughs> that's racist. Okay. So just, we're not going to get into these because I want to. I want to actually get into the system, but but these are the sorts of things, and you know, it's uh, got graphic quality and looks expert and official and, oh, okay, this is how we're to understand the world. Okay, these are, and so the DEI training that's happening in our universities and in businesses and like, this is the sort of stuff that's being put forward. Um, so, here's what we're just gonna do, Lord willing. We're gonna answer, page five, three questions. What is critical theory? Or what, maybe more accurately, what are critical theories? Because it's, there's many. Secondly, how has critical theory affected our world? And so those are the two things we're going to get at in the first session. And then finally, how do we engage in a critical theory world? So what is critical theory? I don't know if any of you listen to the Just Thinking podcast, but one of the things I really appreciate about those guys is they always seek to define their terms very carefully. And and this is, if, if you're having an interaction with someone... Um, issues a really helpful thing if they're willing to do it is say can you please tell me what you mean by that, what your standard of judgment is for assessing that. If you can answer those two questions you've gone much farther than the vast majority of discussions and interactions in our society do on these topics. What does this word mean and by what standard do you evaluate it? Okay. So uh, you know the challenge with something like this is it's a large movement, it's developed over time so we don't want to oversimplify history. There's, there's many more things we could talk about always, right? And none of us has God's exhaustive knowledge of the topic. So we're going to necessarily simplify history and various figures. And, and there's many, many theories. And so not everything applies equally to every theory. Uh, but one of the biggest challenges, I think, with critical th- is, you see it right in the name, it's critical. It is a fundamentally negative project. It's all about tearing down. Because they're saying, well, just look around. Do you see the inequalities? Do you see injustices? That's the problem. And so we need to get rid of the things that we're identifying as the causes of those inequalities. And if, if it is kind of bloody and messy in the meantime, that's the cost of progress, right? And they do have a vision of a future and a utopia, but it's not very clear. It's never been achieved because it's God's world. Uh, but it's also not really a first-order concern. The first order is deal with all the structural inequalities, with all the things that we see are wrong. Okay? So it's very much a project that is dedicated to critique, to problematics, to tearing down. We've got to destroy things. Right? Um, BLM very famously was about the destruction of the nuclear family. Right? It was right there in their values until that got publicized, and then it was removed from the website. We've got to destroy the nuclear family and, and the patriarchy and the, you know, the, the mom and the dad and the dad leading, because that's oppressive. That's oppressive. That's holding us back from progress. Okay, and we'll, we'll get into that. So fundamentally negative project. So I have a definition here. It's a little dense, uh, so we'll try and walk through it slowly. But critical theory is fundamentally a method of social critique. So critical theory is trying to critique the culture, okay? What's wrong? And it's meant to achieve societal liberation. So we're gonna critique because on the other side of it, if we can get rid of all these problems, we'll produce freedom, we'll get liberation. Via education, we've got eight people in new sociological views. So the way you think about who you are as a person, the way you think about your relationship to other persons, that's sociology. Okay. Uh, we're going to give you new views. We're going to educate you in those. And through that, you'll, you'll reach a state of liberation. If enough people do it and we apply it thoroughly enough, uh, we're going to reach liberation. And you see this, you know, the, the thing about communism of, well, but, but, but they've never actually done the pure, right? If we just do the pure communism, it'll work. It's always corrupted, uh-huh, right? Because we're, we're dedicated to this this vision. And so fundamentally, it's a rejection of existing authorities. And so this is where we have to appreciate it. Um, It is not hard to find inequalities, injustices, oppression, and abuse in our world, right? Like you've read the Bible. (laughs) You've lived, you know, nobody here's even close to a toddler, like you've lived life, you've oppressed others in various ways, like it's all around us. So it's not hard to find, which is part of why these views resonate with people. But what they do is they say, well, clearly those in charge have produced the situation, the circumstances, the values that have produced these outcomes. And so what we need to do is get rid of those in charge, okay? Uh, which we'll get into, and it's, but in certain ways, uh, critical theory is new. Based. You, you picked an example from the Bible. If you look at number 16, Korah gets 250 chiefs of the congregation. These are well-known men, and he goes to <clears throat> Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Right? You're not the boss of me. You don't get to tell us what to do. We are all equal. We're all holy. We're all, right. The Lord's with us. Who are you to exalt yourself? That, that is the essence of the critical theory critique of the world. All, all the authorities are the problem, and if we could just get rid of them, then we'd be okay. We'd be liberated. Uh, and, of course, that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Did God really say, that's not true? You won't die. You'll be liberated. You'll have insight, right? This is a timeless message. It's just playing out in a particular way in our day. And so, um, I'm going to skip that next. <laughs> so much a critical theory. Is intentionally obscure and obtuse. So this book, uh, Critical Theory: A Very Short Introduction, is a very short introduction. It's very small, but the font is tiny and it's it's unreadable. You're just like, who writes like this? Like normal humans can't understand. This is nonsense, right? Uh, this is one of the reasons that uh, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, who are both atheists, wrote their book Cynical Theories. Uh, it can be a helpful book. They research. Now, their values are atheistic values, and, and so their prescriptions, they're, they're basically saying we've gone too far and we just need to take a couple steps back. All right, things were better, uh, and, and they're wrong. But uh, they're but, but good at identifying some key values in critical theory, and so here's a quote from them. A critical theory is chiefly concerned with revealing hidden biases and under-examined assumptions, usually by pointing out what have been termed problematics which are ways in which society and the systems that it operates upon are going wrong. So what does critical theory do? It says, that's a problem, that's a problem. See that bias? See that unequal outcome? See that assumption? Do you see that, do you see that, do you see that? That's what's wrong with the world, right? And the people in charge, they made it that way, right? And so, you know, Thomas Sowell has said that social justice is envy plus rhetoric that's what it's doing it's saying see the problems right don't you envy what other people have let me give you this rhetoric that will rouse you in order to rise up against these injustices timeless appeal timeless appeal okay so one thing i want to note here too is when you think of a religion there's four fundamental things in a religion there's more that could be to that but there's some view of god there's some view of man there's some view of sin there's some view of salvation Critical theory denies God, so man becomes God, or the state becomes God. Man is autonomous, we're whatever we want to make ourselves to be. Sin sin is the various kinds of oppression that exist. And salvation is throwing off the authorities and the oppressors so we can get to the place of liberation. Okay? It's a religion. And Pluckrose and Lindsay talk about it that way, it's a religion. And uh, they think that they're above religion because they're atheists. Um, they just don't recognize their own religion, which is science and progress. And so that, that's kind of a high-level conceptual overview of critical theory, right? It's a view of oppressor and oppressed where they're critiquing the problems in society and saying we need to get rid of these oppressive structures uh, so that we can reach liberation. So I want to talk a little bit about history. Where did this come from? We're going to start with Marx. <coughs> Critical theory is not strictly Marxist. It's better described as neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. We'll talk about that. But So you think about Marx, It's 200 years ago. He's born in Germany. Uh, and, and his insight is, look at all the economic injustice. Okay, And he had, you talk about Oppression and oppressed. The factories, the mines, the child labor, ton of exploitation going on. Okay? He had legitimate, valid critique. And he's saying this is all about economics. This is what he made it about. Everything's about economics. And there, if you follow the money, there is genuine insight in that, uh, for sure. But, uh, so he's focusing on this class struggle. He's saying the problem is the, the bourgeois, they, they own the means of production. They structure society for their advantage, right, the bourgeoisie, but the, the proletariat, they just exist for the benefit of their capitalist overlords who exploit them. They're alienated from the products of their labor, and, and so they're not getting the benefit that they should get. And so we need to uh, help them to see they have this false consciousness where they, they've been uh, Taught by society that this is their lot in life, and this is part of why religion's a problem. It's an opiate, because it dulls people to the problems, and it says, "You know what? Your rewards in heaven. Don't worry about this life. Your rewards in heaven, right?" And so then you don't have to do anything. You know, suffering. I mean, Jesus suffered, and isn't suffering glorified in some respects in the Christian faith? And right, these are the views. And so he's saying we need to help them to overcome this barrier so they can see that it, it really is these oppressors exploiting them, and he's appealing to the workers. Look, you need to, to well, the, the quote at the end of the Communist Manifesto, workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains, okay? And so Marx had this very utopian vision. He said, you know, the more advanced, because capitalism is like one of the last stages of society before it collapses and then communism or socialism comes in and, and makes everything better uh, and so he said the advanced societies they're gonna they're gonna crash first right and then we'll we'll see the communist uh, utopia come about he said if we can just abolish private property that's that's huge because private property leads to theft deal something if it doesn't belong to somebody else right if we just have all things in common doesn't that sound like the book of acts right and so you, you can't it, it doesn't just, okay. that's not what the book of Acts is saying. Um, you don't have an, uh, a seventh commandment if you don't have private property. But um, Actually, several of the commandments. Uh, so theft, murder, war, right? All these things are downstream of private property. So we've got to get rid of co- private property and, and make everything uh, communally owned, which means state owned. And then we all have free access to whatever we need, our consumables, right? And so we're gonna have this classless, eventually stateless, moneyless, totally society. Where everything, and, and the slogan is, from each according to his abilities, to each according to his needs. So whatever you have to contribute, you contribute. And whatever you need, you receive. Right? It's very utopian, it's very appealing. And in a system where there's great disease and, and significant suffering, it, it sounds pretty enticing, right? Now, um, he recognized uh, that it, it, it's probably going to take a significant shock to the system to get this kind of revolution in society. Like, the wealthy aren't going to hand over their wealth and power right? They want to retain it. It's going to be a fight. And so, but he's saying, look, this society is going to die out. This society is going to be born. And, and so this quote here, he's, he's uh, talking about events that occurred in Vienna. There's only one way in which the murderous death agonies of the old society and the bloody birth throes of the new society can be shortened, simplified, and concentrated. And that way is revolutionary terror, Right? So if you've got to bust a few skulls, it's the price of progress, right? And, and if you know history, you know that's, I mean, revolutionary terror is communist heritage. Uh, okay, I already talked about the Communist Manifesto there. So, you know, Communist Manifesto is written in 1848. It's almost 70 years before it's really enacted. And it's not enacted in the advanced capitalist societies. It's enacted in peasant Russia with the Bolshevik revolution, and they throw off Tsar Nicholas, right? And 30 some years later, Mao brings it to China. Uh, and, and then it starts to spread all over the world, right? Remember the Vietnam War, stopping the halt of communism was one of the, the big apologetics for it. And of course, everywhere it goes, it, it is brutal. The results are brutal. It has been really, you know, I was born in the 70s, which I to some of you is young and some of you is old, uh, but it's amazing to me that teens and young adults today are embracing socialism, right? The USSR was like the bad guys in like Rocky movies and everything, right? James Bond, like they're always the bad guys. And now they're like, hey, yeah, this would be great. <laughs> it's like, do you not know? Did your parents not tell you what it was like, you know, because... Uh, widespread famine, brutal persecution of dissidents, and, and it's a really bad idea for the government to run the economy. right? It always produces. I, I was in Cuba uh, in the 90s. Um, people with doctorates were waiting tables for tourists because they made more in tips from German tourists than they would, you know, university or practicing medicine. Or, um they're driving cars from the 50s, which looks pretty cool, but it's because they can't get anything newer, right? Uh, it's a brutally oppressive regime because it's so contrary to human nature. So Marx, it's important to understand that little bit of his history. Uh, the next significant step, and this is where the critical theory starts to come in, is the Frankfurt School, which was founded in Germany in 1923, so, uh, which is right at the end of the Russian Civil War that led to the USSR. The Frankfurt School were these concerned Marxists, and they're looking and saying, why hasn't Marx's predictions come true? Why haven't his values been embraced? And they're saying, well, it's too narrowly focused, it's ineffective. And so you can see the the quote here. So theory was conceived within the intellectual crucible of Marxism. It came out of Marxism. But its leading representatives were, from the start, dismissive of economic determinism. That's the view that economics drives everything. That was Marx's view. And his stage theory of history, where you go through and you get to the utopia, and any fatalistic belief in the inevitable triumph of socialism, they were concerned less with what Marx called the economic base than the political and cultural superstructure of society. Their Marxism was of a different form, and that's why we call it cultural Marxism. Economics has been downplayed in in critical theory. Um, And it's much more about culture. And so I listed some of the key figures that you might recognize, some of those names. Adorno's authoritarian personality, uh, that's obviously in Europe. You have Hitler, you have Mussolini, right? These are the the fascists, the dictators, the ones, you know, these authoritarians, that's who Trump's being likened to, right? The threat of January 6th, all that. That's coming out of this view of authoritarian personality. Um, and critical theory. Uh, Herbert Marcuse's Eros and Civilization, he was in many ways the father of the sexual revolution, right? We need to press back on all these oppressive sexual structures that have plagued society. Uh, But the one I want to talk about is the Italian Antonio Gramsci. It's always the Italians. (laughs) So Gramsci, uh, didn't live a very successful life. He, was, uh, he opposed Mussolini, which you don't oppose, Il Duque. Uh, and he was thrown in prison um, and like a failure. But he wrote these prison notebooks that were eventually translated and came to America into the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s and were profoundly influential in the universities, in the counterculture, in the sexual revolution and all. And he basically reversed Marx on his head. Marx says, look, everything's about economics. And, and Gramsci said, no, no, no. Economics is downstream of culture. Culture produces economics. And so he, he coined this phrase, hegemonic power, or sometimes you'll hear hegemony. And he's saying, look, it's this, this complex interlocking of politics, social values, cultural values, where the group in power imposes their norms and values on the rest of society. So identify the hegemony and bust it up, and that's part of your liberation. And so he's saying, well, look, what's Western civilization founded on? Christianity. So what we need to do is de-Christianize culture. If we de-Christianize it, then we can decapitalize it, right? We can get rid, capitalism is a suppressive economic system. So if we get rid of Christianity, then we can get the economic system of communism, which will bring liberation. And so this quote is from Gramsci here. Socialism is precisely the religion that must kill Christianity. It is a religion in the sense that it too is a faith. And because it has substituted for the consciousness of the transcendental God of the Catholics, so this God who's above us, who is is we're in his image, but he is not like us. He's other than us. He's uncreated. He's, right? Uh, He's transcendental. So a God outside of the system. We're getting rid of that. Um, it, replace that with trust in man and his best strengths as the sole spiritual reality. And so you can see it's kind of this enlightenment. Hey, man, man's pretty good, right? We can figure this out. And so, if we, and so you get rid of God, which means man is God, which usually means the state is God. Um, and so we have to get rid of Christianity. Well, as, so they're in Germany, but as Hitler rises to power, they need to leave. Many of them were Jewish, So they were threatened on multiple levels, both in their ethnicity and their politics, various things. Uh, And so they go to Geneva briefly, and then they come to New York City. They come to Columbia University, and that's where things start to really influence America. And that began uh, what Rudy Dutschke has called long march institutions. Because if you capture education, unless you're stopped, you've captured the culture. Right? So they get some key professors, well, what do professors have? Students, you might call them disciples, who admire the professors and their great learning and their wit and their erudition and they want to be like them. And so some of them become professors, but some become journalists and some become lawyers and some become political operatives, and, right? And pretty soon these values are spreading until it reaches a critical mass and then it just has tremendous influence on culture. And so some of the changes that we're seeing that seems so quick have been building for decades, right, and started back here. So some of the contemporary of this are things I mentioned that one. Uh, Matt Chandler preached that to his church at one point. Um, David Platt preached that at T4G. Uh, anyways, Robin DiAngelo, she's made a lot of money the last few years, white fragility. Uh, Eduardo Bonilla-Silva, racism without racists. That's the idea of systemic cis- oppression structural oppression and racism. You you could be a racist country without people who are actually racist because the structures have already been established in racist ways. Uh, Judith Butler, that's queer theory. Uh, she's, we'll talk about that. Kimberly Crenshaw, intersectionality. That's the power and privilege wheel, right? All these different, so what she was saying is, because there was... Uh, You know, a lot of what's driven feminism, and again has been a legitimate critique, is domestic abuse. And so first wave feminism was dealing with drunkenness. The drunkard's wife, that was a huge issue in 19th century America, drunkenness. Uh, and, And so they were trying to, that's what led to prohibition. Prohibition wasn't, I think it was the wrong policy and poorly executed, but just like foolishness out of thin air. It was like, we've got a massive problem of drunkenness and, and wives and children being abused and taken advantage of. We've got to do something about this, right? Uh, so it was kind of first wave feminism. Um, second wave came along and got more into things, okay, uh, like domestic abuse wasn't criminalized until, I think Pennsylvania was actually the first state to do it. And it was in the 20th century. I forget if it was 1950s or 1970s, okay, criminalized as a crime. And, And she's seeing this awareness of domestic abuse, but she's saying, you know what, you're missing something because there's a different dynamic with black women. It's not just that they're women, which is an oppressed category, but they're black women, so there's another category. And so what we need to do is add categories to help us understand the multiple levels of oppression that can be going on. Right? Which, again, there can be truth to that, right? So, um, but the cate- not all the categories are l- legitimate and how they think about it and what they say to do with it. So I'm not saying this is a use- these are not useful tools. I'm just saying they're not out to lunch. You understand what I'm saying? There's a difference. Like, there's valid critique. There's valid problems that need to be addressed. Um, but that's what started this intersectionality, is we need to appreciate various ways... Um, Ibrahim X. Kendi, I think he's made a lot of money lately. Uh, how to be anti-racist. So the, you know, the um, only proper response to racism is not Martin Luther King Jr., you know, content of your character, not the color of your skin. It's to be anti-racist, right? And we'll, t- we'll talk about that. And then a name you may not have heard of, uh, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, because education is so huge in critical theory, and I... I forget where I saw this, so I can't go find it, but he, second or third most cited source in education circles. So if you've been trained as a teacher, you've almost certainly gotten Ferrera. But if you've gone to college, you've almost certainly gotten Ferreira. Like, he, he's just been incredibly influential. Um, and so, yeah. And there's a lot we could talk about with all of them. Uh, but uh, part of what I'm doing here is trying to give you categories and resources and there's a bibliography in back which are not all books and you can study on your own so what are some key terms in critical theory well oppression we've already talked about that Uh, things like hegemony which uh, is basically how how does the dominant group establish and maintain power and how do they suppress dissidents? now the irony is critical theory has cultural hegemony they have the power. They crush the dissidents. Right? You're not allowed to disagree with the tenets of critical theory in most of the elite institutions of our day. Right? Remember the was he the founder of Firefox gave $1000 to Proposition 9 in California which was supporting traditional marriage and he was he job. Right? They will crush you. Uh, Kim Davis didn't give out the marriage license to a homosexual couple. She was just fined $100,000, right? They will crush you. They, they have the cultural hegemony. Um, so there's truth to these categories. We just got to think through them biblically. Hierarchy, this is a big thing. So in, in, the, cultural th- in the critical theory world, all hierarchy is oppressive. Now, I, I know within, because my dissertation's on abuse, and, and that's what got me studying these topics more. World, Power and control are the center of abuse within a ring of violence. And, and so there's just wheel of power and control. And then the solution that's offered is equality within a ring of nonviolence. Right? So power and control. And so they say all hierarchy is oppressive, because then someone's got power. So it's, it's an inherently negative view of power. The Bible does not have a negative view of power and control. They can be used negatively, but, you know, exercise dominion, lead, right? Rule, kings are called to rule well. The Bible talks about the blessings when a king rules well. And so when you take something that God designed for good, which can be used for good, and you make it inherently evil, then you don't give anybody a good Because then there's no way for anyone to exercise authority, power, control, because it's wrong. Hierarchy's wrong. You know, Gandhi said, um, to impose your will on someone is an act of violence. Okay. So if I say to my child, go clean your room. I've committed an act of violence. It sounds profound, right, until you think about it. I assume you all drove on the right side of the road Right, the government imposed its will on you. Anybody drive to the left side all the way here? Like, whoo. Right? You were imposed upon. Violence. Okay? All hierarchy is conceived of as oppressive. It's a profoundly egalitarian project that we've all been affected by. Egalitarianism has is the spirit of our age. And I don't mean uh the complementarian versus egalitarian debate, you know, can there be women pastors type of thing. I mean, egalitarian, pagan egalitarianism There's a small fruit, but okay, How about that. Uh, hierarchy, patriarchy is a form of hierarchy, right? Abolish the patriarchy. My daughters have threatened to get me a I am the patriarchy t-shirt. Uh, It'll be kind of fun. Heteronormativity, the idea that sexuality is designed for a man with a woman? That that's normative, the idea of normativity. Is there a norm? Right? That's a big one, that's a big one in the church. Have you seen all the warnings about idolizing the family? Don't make an idol of the family. It's nonsense. Right, we have to be so, don't speak to these things. No, 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 there's clearly norms. Right? And the family, if you don't have a husband and a wife and children, you literally don't have society, right? That has to, that's how society is perpetuated. Now, there's people who don't have a husband or a wife or children, and there's suffering in that, and there's, right? So, but to say, therefore, we can't speak of any norm, that, that's a profoundly actually critical theory move. Right? We, we need to design we need to identify the structures that God has built into the world and, and affirm the goodness of them in part so we can make sense of the world right also so we can actually care well for people who are suffering in various ways okay uh, but this is part of why like if you know about uh, young men getting into Andrew Tate or uh, some of the Manosphere stuff, it's because some of those guys are or Jordan Peterson, or they, they have legitimate insight because they're willing to speak to things that Christians won't because we, we're too concerned about being nice. But they, it's fatally poisoned. Like, their, their, their view is twisted, right? And so it's, it's, it's terrible advice, but they're, they're speaking to a category that the church is avoiding. Right? So as Christians, we got to say, this is the way the world is, and God designed it this way, and it's good. Okay? So heteronormativity is part of that. Um, I reject that category. I reject the category of cisgender. But the uh, cisgender is that you, you are, your your gender identity is what your sex was at birth, right? Gender is just a a twisted category. It's fine in language. It's terrible in human, right? You are your sex. You are a man or a woman. Uh, you, You are not your sexuality. I mean. You, have you ever said, oh, I'm straight? No, you're not. You're a man or a woman designed by God for masculinity or femininity, including your sexuality. You're not your sexuality. That's not your identity. Right. Rosaria Butterfield has said sexuality has gone from a verb to a noun. It's gone from an activity to an identity. That's a critical theory move. Okay? It's just not true. Uh, so... There's actually a pretty new book out by Matthew Roberts called Pride. Um, That should be in the second So, and then of course with with cisgender, you know, the the whole point of queer theory is to liberate society from the idea of a normal, okay? Um, And which means their writings can be absolutely nonsensical and Pluck, Rose, and Lindsay say, the incoherence of queer theory is an intentional feature, not a bug. Like, you read it, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. They're like, right, now you get it. No, I don't get it. It still doesn't make any sense, right? Like, that's what they're trying to do. There's no norms. Who's to say what normal is, right? Well, if there's no God, there is no norm. But. And so one of the fruits of this is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Because we've got to make sure we represent all the marginalized groups. We've got to make sure that we're not engaging in oppressive hegemony, right? If we don't achieve DEI levels of representation in the various structures of the world, we're being oppressive. It's just not the way. Again, it's not that there's no legitimacy to any critique, but this framework it's, you know, one of the things about critical theory as a religion is there is no salvation. It is penance for the rest of your life, for whatever power you possess, according to their will, the very best thing you can do is feel badly about that and repent of having it. Right? You have to be an anti-racist in opposing racism. Uh, well, we can get into that, but it's racism as they define it. The problem with the DEI stuff is it's um, it's using unbiblical categories, uh, and and you know Vody Bacham is great on this. He says nobody's concerned that there's too few white guys in the NBA. Right? It's all about representation, unless the representation benefits a perceived minority. So it's really not about equality of outcomes right? So what is it about? That's, that's the question you got to ask. So the DEI stuff. Um, so those are some of the key terms. In anthropology, uh, critical theory is primarily about group identity. So it's really not who you are as a, an individual. You don't really exist as an individual. And there's really no category of the human race, that we are all one in Adam, created in the image of God. That doesn't function. And I think this quote from Pluck summarizes that. The individual in applied postmodernism, that, which is critical theory is part of that, is something like the sum total of the identity groups to which the person in question simultaneously belongs. So go to that wheel, find out where you are, and that's your identity. You really don't exist as an individual. Christianity, almost uniquely, makes sense of humanity at all three levels, individual, group, and race, meaning human race. It, it, we can affirm all of those things with biblical clarity. Um, and it, inevitably these views, I mean, you see this in the Biden administration where people are not being appointed because of their competence. They're being appointed because of their inter, intersectional representation. So Justice Ketanji Brown, Uh, Jackson I forget the Brown Jackson Uh, anyways Biden was very explicit it must be a black woman right it also diminishes her because there's always going to be she wasn't chosen from all of the eligible justices she was chosen from this particular subset which were based on qualities that she had nothing to do with. Wasn't about her competence, wasn't about how well she's reasoned legally, it wasn't about how impartial and fair and clear that she writes so well or that, right? It was entirely about these two DEI categories, which achievement, it's an achievement, goodness, to be a Supreme Court justice and to have that diminished because of this artificial structure, right? Um, Matt Chandler again said apparently they use search committees to find pastors and he said uh, would you rather have the Anglo 8 or the Black 7 who would you take? he said well I'd take the Black 7 but not the Black 6 because that would be too much tokenism my goodness that is racist that's demeaning to anybody on your staff right? so in the name of achieving Equity of outcomes—it it, profoundly unrighteous. And of course, the other thing about um, the anthropology of critical theory is the dilemma of the of T. So, if feminists are saying, "Look, there's no essential difference between men and women, other than the obvious physiological ones, right? But women should be able to do anything men can do, which is why abortion has to be a sacrament, so women are liberated from their bodies, so can, right? And the and the transgender woman, get this." Uh, Tra- just substitute fake. So the fake woman, right? The transgender woman is the fake woman. It's the man who's posing as a woman. Um, the transgender woman says, no, no, I'm a, I was born in a man's body, but I feel like a woman. There's an essential femininity within me. And feminism says, no, there's, no, there's not an essential femininity, right? Because if there were, then that could mean there could be differences between men and women. There'd be masculinity and femininity, but there's not. And so there's this war right now between trans-exclusionary uh, radical feminists, TERFs, like J.K. Rowling, um, who wrote Harry Potter series, and trans-activists. because And it's, it's the incoherent... They're trying to include because they're an oppressed minority, but the systems... And it just shows that these, these systems are incoherent. They can't. They can't work. This won't last. Okay, It's not going to last. Um, but it's part of what's going on. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, liberation, social justice is about the lip then it is unjust. Okay, and we'll get to that in the second point. Uh, the celebration of diversity and multicultural relativism. Again, these are things that biblically, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And what this tends to do is absolutize things and use categories that are unbiblical, like the amount of melanin in your skin. That's not a, an important category biblically. Um, and then it, it, it makes cultural values relative, which they're not, right? Cultural values need to be assessed by God's word. Like, aren't you glad that there's not any that I'm aware of cannibalism in the United States? That would be a worse culture, <laughs> right? And so this idea that, oh, it's just, well, that's just cultural. But is it in align line with how God has made the world or not? These things can be better or worse, and and we need to be able to evaluate that biblically. Um, Social justice says, no, you can't do that. Okay, and so uh, this is important. So a lot of this, like I said, comes down to issues of justice, and, and one of the most important, if not the most, for our day is John Rawls, who was an Episcopalian layman and a philosopher, and his two points are justice as fairness, which we'll get into, And the idea, he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have you design a society where you don't know where you're going to be placed in it, your original position. You don't know where you're going to start in this society. So what kind of society would you design? Well, an equal society, right? We should all start equal. I won't be born at a disadvantage. Uh, I don't want to take a chance. So Maybe you have a high risk tolerance. And you say, no, no, we'll do a hierarchy because maybe I'll get, you know, who knows. But, but most people would say equal. Um, and he's saying, yeah, that's the problem. Don't you, it, is everyone in our society born at the same place? Uh-uh. No, there's all kinds of inequalities in society. So the only just thing to do is to redistribute resources so that we can achieve justice. And the easiest way to measure the inequities is to look at outcomes. So wherever there's an an inequity and outcome, it's produced by a structural injustice that must be undone, okay? The problem is that is not how God has designed the world. God has filled the world with hierarchies and inequalities. Right, the Bible affirms both. It, it affirms equality in certain ways and inequality. in right? we're, we're equally human, equally in the image of God, equally value and worth and dignity, equally accountable to God. All kinds of inequalities though. Right? Like If if, you know, Lionel Messi just came to Miami to play soccer. I played soccer when I was a kid, I was actually pretty good. But if you put me and Lionel on the same field, I'm taller where the advantages end, right? He would crush me. Well, that's no fair. That's not fair that he would beat me a million to one. What can we do, right? And it's, it's just, that's not the way the world works. God designed each of us differently. He's given us different roles, different abilities, different responsibilities. He's given us different starting places. There's an appeal to envy, right? I'll look at what they have. I didn't get that. There's also the assumption that And Bacham talks about this. If you're in the the group that is perceived as having the power, there's an assumption that anything you have, you achieved unjustly. Because you benefited. That's the whole white privilege argument. You benefited from these unjust structures. It's unbiblical to make that assumption. Like, do people benefit from unjust? Absolute benefit from all kinds of things. And you better believe that the wealthy privilege their children. But don't you all privilege your children? Or do you try and disadvantage your children? You try and make life harder for them? No, no. You try to make life better. Right? But I don't know if you've ever read uh, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. That's a great book. I can, uh, we, we were pretty poor when I grew up. Now, I, didn't grow up in the, I grew up in rural Colorado uh, in a trailer park and um, many wealthy friends. And and Van, you know, reading Vance is very interesting to see the family structures, to see the economic realities. But he Ivy's did he go to Yale? I think. The thing he noticed is it was all about ne- networking. It was about relationships, who you knew. That's social capital. That's a huge advantage in life if you've got those connections. Right. Uh, so there's it's not that there, there are privileges, there are advantages. Uh, but the Bible makes very clear that, that God puts us all in various circumstances. He's the one, you know, in Acts it talks about, he appoints the boundaries of our dwelling places that we might seek him. And so there are advantages and disadvantages that each of us have relative to others that have been God's providence in our lives. And if we make those things a source of complaint, a, we don't have a leg to stand on, Before God. Because ultimately, critical theory is constantly charged with being unjust. Constantly. Okay? Then you also can't uh, appreciate, there's an entire lack of gratitude in a critical theory world. Because I just deserve so much more. So it's a poison. Uh, You know, Kendi has... Argued to start a department of anti racism that would be unelected experts that have power over everything. And so they look, and if they see an inequitable outcome, they punish it. And if a piece of legislation, every piece of legislation would have to go through them to be assessed for potential inequitable outcomes. That that would be the destruction of any country it was enacted in. That would be a reign of terror. goodness. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'll mention this from DeAngelo. So she, she has these basic tenets of anti-racist education. Racism is not prejudice. It's not sinful partiality towards yourself and the people that you identify with or sinful hatred and, and animosity against others. It's prejudice plus power. Okay, sexism is... You know, they're all kind of prejudice plus power. You you introduce this power dynamic. So if there's a power disparity, a power imbalance, power dynamics are huge. Uh, Then it's unjust. And so, you know, you could, again, you could change racism, sexism, all kinds of things in here. This is both traditional and modern forms. That includes the power. All members of the society have been socialized to participate in it. You've been catechized because you've grown up in this white supremacist culture. All white people benefit from racism regardless of intentions. Even if you don't want to benefit from racism, you have. That's the white privilege. Your intentions are irrelevant. Good news, no one here chose to be socialized into racism, so no one's bad. It's not your fault. But no one is neutral. So if you don't act against racism, you actually support it. If you don't, if you're not an act anti-racist, you are a racist. And you can, like I said, you can substitute the other categories in that as well. Um, and so that's that's kind of the power structure dynamic, and um, which is my next point here. So, uh, this comes out of the kind of the Bible for domestic abuse, the education groups for men who batter. This is what started that system. Any system that gives one group power over another group dehumanizes both those with too much power and those without enough power you have all dehumanized you for them, right? There's a profound argument. And so what this has done is uh, intersectionality has produced a category of sanctified victimhood. America's always appreciated victims, always appreciated the the scrappy underdog, right? And so if you're in this category, you're a victim, and if you're a victim, you're sanctified. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And so here's the problem with power dynamics. You, you might have seen this. You know, an example would be uh, there's, there's a line of interpretation of David and Bathsheba that says it was rape. And the argument is essentially that because he was king, she could not give consent. It wasn't that she didn't give consent. It was that she could not give consent, virtue of the power disparity. You just don't see that in Scripture. Okay. The nature of abuse is such that somebody has to impose; they have to compel others. Physically, sexually, uh, you know, with COVID, it was the threat of losing your job. It, you know, there's some manner of compulsion in abuse, uh, and so that power dynamic is part of it. But uh, R.C. Sproul talks about. The difference between necessary and sufficient conditions. Uh, so uh, that differential is a necessary condition for abuse. If I want to beat up Nicholas, but I'm not stronger than he is, I can't do it, right? You got, there's got to be a disparity. But it's not a sufficient condition for abuse, um, Oxygen is a necessary condition for water. you got to have oxygen. It's not a sufficient condition for water, or else we'd all be drowning right now, right? Oxygen is part of what makes up water, but it's not the entirety of it, and it's not like everywhere there's oxygen, there's water. Similarly, power is a necessary condition for abuse, sufficient. It's not that everywhere there's power, there's abuse, but in a critical theory world, everywhere there's power, it is abusive. That's the huge problem. And part of where that's played out in the church is, is it said, look, church, you need to back off of engaging society because you, you can't, you know the slogan, you can't impose your morality. You can't legislate morality. It's like, no, don't you understand? All legislation is morality. And it's morality. Impo- it's saying, here's good here's bad, here's right, here's wrong, here's punishment, here's reward. That's all legislation is, okay? The question isn't whether or not there's going to be power, it's is the power exercised for good or for bad? That's the question. Is it exercised righteously within the structures and systems that God's designed, or is it exercised in rebellion against him, and, and for the detriment of mankind um, and so to understand power dynamics that's a huge and so that's where uh, one of the fruits of this is this has produced a profound suspicion of authority in our culture We don't need a lot of encouragement that way after Genesis 3 Genesis 3 was the throwing off of the ultimate authority and somebody comes along and says, yeah, authority's bad. Yeah, you're right. And here's some examples. right? And we'll talk about how we need to respond to that, to that as Christians in the next session. But one of the things to realize the, the, uh, the law, actually those who are accusing you of a power dynamic, of uh, uh, you know, using your power wrongly, themselves want to do that and resent that you have power. Right? One of our children, when we... Discipline them as a child said how come you get to hit me and i don't get to hit you it's like well we're not hitting you a <laughs> but b here's what's going on right here's why this is loving we know things one of the big things that critical theory does is standpoint theory and it says look if we if you know whatever our group, our identity is within that intersectional group uh we're gonna all have the same experience of dominance and oppression, okay? And if we interpret that rightly, uh, then we'll all have the same view, which is why Biden can say, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black, okay? Second, so, so your, your access to knowledge is determined by your social location. It's not objective truth, it's, it's socially determined. Uh, second, within the power dynamics, if you're privileged, you're going to be blinded to all kinds of things. But if you're oppressed, you have a double consciousness, a double vision. you know the, the views of the because you experience them, and you know the views of the oppressed. And so the oppressed are especially enlightened in a critical theory world. OK? And that's why um, men can't speak to the issue of abortion. It's not your body. Now, women are the majority. They're not the minority, but they're still oppressed somehow, right? Um, So you don't get to have a say. And that's actually a huge fruit of intersectionality and critical theory is this idea of unless I think you've experienced exactly what I've experienced, you don't understand. And you don't get to speak to me. That's one of the really divisive fruits of this. You have to experience exactly what I've experienced or I don't have to listen to you. Like it's one thing to to be humble and say, you know what, I might not know what that's like. It's another thing to say, and no, nobody gets it, right? That's a very dangerous, dangerous place to be. Uh, so it's all about your lived experience. The other thing is within it, um, well, I'll get to that in the next one. So, why is this appealing? Uh, well, it's a couple things. You had these weak gods of postmodernity. So, postmodernism said, look, there's no meta narratives. There's no story that makes sense of everything. We've got to get rid of all the grand stories, which means especially Christianity, because Christianity makes sense of everything. We don't like the sense that it makes, so we need to get rid of it and just say, your tr- you know, whatever, your truth, that category of your truth, whatever's true for you, whatever makes you happy, right? That's a weak God, that's not gonna last. And then secular classic liberalism, which is what Pluck, Rose, and Lindsay want, which is to try and have these classic liberal values without God. (laughs) That's a weak God, that's not gonna last. And so it's created this vacuum as as America has been de-Christianized as far as values. And these weak gods came in, didn't last. Critical theory is a monster God. Or it's a bunch of little angry gods. And they come in and they've got strong answers and they've got meta-narratives and they've, they're all about the will to power. They're all about praxis, you gotta accomplish things, right? And so it comes in with this strong, here's what's wrong and here's what must be done. And it, it's, uh, it's simple, you got these 12 categories, maybe a couple more, it's clear and it's reflexive. So all you need to do is take that wheel, okay, one person shot another person, okay. What are their skin colors? What are their genders? What are their sexualities? What are their education, right? Okay, then then it's the oppression Olympics. Who's more oppressed? Okay, they're innocent. They're guilty. Right? You don't need to know what actually happened. It's not whether, you know, the whole anti-racism movement isn't whether or not racism exists. We know it exists. It's just how exactly did it play out here? because the system is racist. The existence of the system, okay? And so it's, it's very appealing. And especially if you're in one of the oppressed categories or why do you think that there's a massive uptick of teenagers embracing alternative sexual identities? It's a way to be oppressed, to be, to be a victim Right? If you feel like an awkward teen and and socially outcast and having a hard time making friends, and somebody comes along and says, you know, if you would identify or whatever, you'd be really cool. Society would celebrate you. People would praise you. Right? Many teens are gonna sign me up. It's it's valorized this victim narrative, uh, based on the system. It's also and and Vodis use these terms. Eth- he uses ethnic, but you can do it with sexual. You can do it with all kinds of categories. Antinomian and gnostic. The antinomianism is if you're in an oppressed category, you cannot be guilty of sin. Right. So I just was it Washington or Oregon that just dropped all of their educational standards. Because there were disparities in achievement, right? is this okay? Gnosticism is gnosticism is timeless, right? It's I have secret insight. I've got secret knowledge. I know the system. I know the key. I mean, there's literally been you know Oprah features people with the book The Secret. It's like could you be any more unsubtle, <laughs> like, right? I know the secret. Um, and so it's this, it's this opportunity to be enlightened, especially enlightened. I'm woke, right? I know I see things that you don't see. I have the knowledge. I have the categories. I have the insight. Um, it also means, again, if you're in that oppressed category, your lived experience is not to be questioned. So if you say something is sexist, it is sexist. If you're a woman, right? If you say it's racist, if you say it's, you know, whatever, if you're in that category, it is. It doesn't matter if by God's standards of justice, it actually is. It is. Because the system is. And we know it is. Okay. What have, Briefly, what have some of the effects been? Well, it's incredibly divisive. Everywhere that DEI comes, Texas A&M just did a big study on it. It's very interesting. So Texas A&M did not have DEI until... 2010 or 2011, and they had surveyed students, like, how much do you feel like you belong at AM? and And, and they used different ethnic categories, and they were all pretty high. And then they rolled out D&I, DEI, and they've all been cut in about half. As they increased awareness, what, what you're saying to people is, we're not all part of the whole, and we're not individual selves. We're just all kind of an insignificant part of our group identities and look at that group and look at that group and none of us, we're not all the same, right? So it's incredibly divisive. In the church where it's unbiblical categories or categories that are decidedly secondary or tertiary biblically, to primary makes things awkward and minimizes, not, are we, not only are we all the same in being created in the image of God, but we're actually all the same and having the same Savior. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. This is one of the mental things that the gospel produces. It breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Right? And, and this stuff re-erects it and says, you're never gonna, you're never gonna overcome this. Which is why the church has a unique opportunity to actually be the place that shows what biblical justice, biblical love, biblical fellowship looks like. Right? Having clarity. Uh, it's dehumanizing and oppressive, ironically because of the categories it uses. It promotes partiality and envy. Uh, It celebrates evil. Again, some of the categories that it uses. It produces suspicion of authority. It's isolating and lonely, right? Because of the division. Isolating and lonely. Uh, It creates pride in the sense of, you know, I'm so glad we're not like those benighted people in the 1980s, let alone the 1380s, or right? We've progressed so far beyond them. Like, are you kidding? (laughs) A lot of times those people were way smarter than we are. They had different problems. But but ultimately, I think one of the biggest things is it it is just hopeless. It is an entirely to produce that. Because it's all about critique. There's no positive vision. and so uh, there's a an article that I list in the free resources by Robert Smith called Cultural Marxism, which is in the journal Thamelios that the Gospel Coalition puts out. And he says that it is intentionally theory and accidentally constructive. Now, that's a great phrase. We want to tear down, and if we build something, okay, right? Well, what's that going to produce? Destruction, hopelessness, isolation, division what's happening in our society, all those things.